Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This podcast is sponsored by Small Farm University, the go-to resource for gardeners, homesteaders, and farmers around the world. Small Farm University delivers classes online and on demand with training on how to grow crops and how to grow a profitable farm business that serves you, your family, and your community well. Delivered by real farmers with hands-on experience and expertise, it's unique in its approach, using the RIPED method for growing and building a farm or farm business. SFU membership includes access to a private Facebook group and monthly live Q&A sessions where you can get your questions answered and find the support you need. To learn more, visit growingfarmers.com today. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Today, my guest is Pamela Tanner Bowl, who is the director and executive producer of the award-winning To Which We Belong. This film highlights farmers and ranchers leaving behind conventional practices that are no longer profitable or sustainable. These unsung heroes are improving the health of our soil and sea to save their livelihoods and our planet. Pamela, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Share a little bit about uh, the premise or what was the thing that brought you to make this? Well, I began uh, thinking about this quite some time ago. Um, you know, we've had a global warming, uh, climate change. Uh, it's it's gone through different uh, names over mm-hmm. the last 20 years. We've been aware that our planet is heating up and it's heating up, we think primarily because of human activity. Uh, we have what's called greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that uh, are holding the warmer air uh, in, uh, you know, in our planet. So this is uh, not good mm-hmm. and uh, our climate is changing and we're trying to keep those changes below uh, uh, a certain two, uh, two degrees centigrade. We are in a little bit of a trouble because of that. We've been, we've been hearing about this for many, many years. Um, I came across a book uh, a number of books that was were talking about how we can reverse global warming, if you will, by changing the way we manage our lands around the world. Mm. It's currently called natural uh, uh, nature-based solutions. But here's the thing: the 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 real deal is that our planet has about five million hectares nearly half of our planet is dedicated to agriculture. Let's just leave it there. Okay. That includes uh, meat production. So that includes grasslands. The way we manage those lands can make an enormous difference in keeping our our planet uh, safe and not go above the two uh, centigrade mark. How? When... The, the conventional practices for growing crops involve a lot of uh, tilling, you know, disturbing the soil and then adding fertilizer to make those crops grow. This is no longer a tenable solution. What the farmers are now seeing is if they can keep their soil um, healthy by having, a, by doing a couple of different practices, 
they can actually draw down more CO2 from the atmosphere to the point where we're not going to have to worry if we do this on the whole planet. Mm. So let's talk through some of those practices. What are the specific practices that yeah, can help sure. us? There's uh, two different, uh, you know, as I said, we have, I think it's 5 billion hectares of agricultural land. 70% of that is grasslands. Okay. So let's talk about grasslands for a moment. A lot of people think that cattle and uh, meat are just bad for the atmosphere and bad for health. But if those animals, if those ruminants are actually only fed grasses and are appropriately grazed, uh, then it is not as um, terrible. It's, it's really when we keep them in CAFOs that we get to the big methane problems. Mm. So the, the, uh, one of the changes is that rather than just letting your thousand head of cattle out for the summer in some huge pasture, they eat whatever they want. Instead, the practices that we're now seeing more effective are to bunch the cattle together and move them, you know, they, so that they don't overgraze and they don't undergraze. Mm. What does this do? It creates uh, deeper roots for those grasses and it allows the grasses to heal and what, and it allows for the, uh, the soil to be covered year round in grasses, which allows for photosynthesis on steroids, essentially. It's, hmm. um, you can overgraze, you can undergraze. Uh, this method has uh, worked if you're at, on the high plains of this country, if you're down in Australia, We've seen it work in, uh, in my film. We have uh, some Maasai uh, cattlemen uh, seeing it work in uh, Kenya, in the Maasai Mara. We see it work in the mountains at high altitudes. Uh, we have a couple of different stories that are in the mountains of Montana and Colorado. Um, the, so bunched and moving cattle, or you have other grazing animals like sheep, same thing, keep them moving so that they don't overgraze. Um, that's a really good practice that if we, could, if we could adopt that worldwide, we'd be in pretty good shape. Um, so if you think about it, 70% of 5 billion hectares of grasses is a lot. You mm -hmm. can draw down so much more CO2. Now, what does the CO2 do? It takes the place of, of fertilizer. Uh, carbon is what... Um, plants need to grow. It's what every, not just uh, grains and, and grasses, but also obviously trees and people. We're all, carbon's not bad. It's just in the atmosphere. It should be in the uh, ground. Uh, how do we know this? If you look at any pasture or uh, cropland around the world, it's lost an enormous uh, amount of soil organic um, matter, which is essentially carbon. So we need to replenish those carbons, sugar, uh, those carbons in the soil. That's what makes the soil more fertile. How does it make it more fertile? Photosynthesis draws down carbon from the atmosphere. It grows the plant and then the excess sugars uh, feed the microbial life in the soil, which is actually what makes the soil fertile. So we've just got to get these systems working in the way that they were meant to work. 
and we can we can uh, you know we can bring them back. For every one percent of uh, CO two that we draw down per acre in uh, cropland, you get twenty five thousand more gallons of water in in the soil. You hold more water, so that's really important in a in a uh, in a climate that's getting that's heating up. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the the carbon. We talked about grass. Um, I'm assuming no till would be part of that. Oh yeah, that's the other thing. If you're growing crops, which 40% of that big number is cropland, or 30%, it depends yeah. on who you're talking to. Um, the other big deal is that our our system of growing crops for thousands of years, it's not a new thing, is to plow, to, mm. to open up the earth and then put the seeds in there and to clear everything from that plot except for the seeds you want to grow well guess what we're now seeing that that's not really helping you you actually need to not disturb the soil so just put the seeds directly into what it went um the soil, even if it's not cleared of quote-unquote weeds and grasses and whatnot Seems crazy, huh? It's a mess. It looks like a mess, but what is this doing? If you are leaving uh, what's essentially called cover crops in the farming world um, between the cash crops, if you're growing diverse plants, which could be weeds, it looks like weeds, you're, you're, uh, you're sort of pumping up your photosynthesis. You're drawing more carbon into the soil. And remember, the carbon is what feeds the microbial life, which is actually what what um, those microbes run around and get what the plant needs uh, to grow effectively. It's what creates the fertility of the soil. So it's no-till and also covering the keeping your land covered. In fact, you can keep plants growing on your farmland year-round instead of leaving them bare. When you leave the soil bare. You're not getting the carbon sugars into the ground. You're not sequestering them. We can actually sequester an enormous amount of carbon in our uh, in our working lands, in our crop lands. And the same thing happens when you have cattle and other ruminants on grasses. The more they they just munch a little bit and then move on, the the grasses grow with deeper roots and deliver more CO2 to the uh, to the microbial life mm. on the planet. Yeah. So you've traveled all over America to Mexico and then even to Kenya to visit farms and regenerative learning centers. Tell us about that process. I wanted to, people will always tell you, well, you get more rain or well, we're too dry or, um, uh, we don't get enough sun. Everyone has a story about why they need to use a lot more fertilizer and what have you. And um, what, so the, the point of going to all these different um, climates essentially was to show that these practices work no matter where you are in the mm. world. Uh, in the Chihuahuan desert, it's a desert. Uh, Alejandro Carrillo, who's a cattleman down there, has increased his herd. By the time we did the film, he had been working his land, which is a uh, for eight nine years, and it had increased his herd size three times 
and the grasses, as if you watch the film, you'll see, they've come back. They've come back. It's the mm. same in the Masai Mara within one year of bunching and they put all the cattle together in one big herd instead of everybody competing for the best grasses it used to be they'd all run each of the herdsmen would run out with their cattle and try to get the best grasses instead they began collaborating with each other and putting all their cattle into a herd and then moving them as one unit uh, over the uh, grasslands within the first year the grass cover was increased 70 percent that's wow. huge. Uh, it's the same in the James Ranch. They're, um, they are, uh, at, I think I forgot how high they are, 6,000, 7,000 um, feet high in Colorado. And well, they have a, uh, a farm where they're growing cattle. Well, they have milk um, cattle, but they also have another area where they have cattle. But then they also have crops. And it all works together because their main focus is healthy soil. It, mm -hmm. That means drawing more CO2, more carbon out of the atmosphere where it doesn't belong, where it's creating a problem, down into the soil where the soil is starving for uh, that uh, CO2, for the carbon. It's We've depleted it through our practices over many, many years. Mm to show that it would work no matter where you enter. It works in the ocean. We have our, um, our ocean farmer who's uh, growing uh, different quote unquote crops uh, around the year. Seaweed is a huge, uh, it grows really fast and it, grow, it sequesters, it sucks out that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and uh, uses it to grow the plants. It's amazing. We do that with mangroves around the world. We do it with forests. We do, you know, but I like soil because it stays there. Yeah. If you're doing, if you only focus on trees, you have to think about, well, those trees are going to be cut down and then the carbon is once again exuded into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So seeing this around the world was important for you. Now talk to us a little bit about some of the different nonprofits like the Savory Institute that you um, did research with. Uh, Savory was started by uh, a real visionary, Alan Savory. He's, he's, he's a genius, although he would say he, he's not. He's in his 80s now, but he's still very active. And he actually, it was a video that I saw that was done in 2013. I think it was a TED Talk. I saw him and he said, basically, cattle save the world. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. You know, I was intrigued. So he said he had been working as a park ranger for years. And uh, in, um, I think it was Zimbabwe, don't quote me on that. Uh, and uh, at one point they decided that they had too many elephants on the land and they had to, uh, they, in order for the grasses to grow, they felt like they had to reduce the herd sizes. Mm. Sound familiar? Yes. So they did. It was a horrifying thing to do to shoot these beautiful animals and their babies. He was really um, traumatized by it. And instead of the land improving, it got worse. Mm. So he began to really look at that. And he's the one who came up with this notion that if you have animals 
on the land. It's like the buffalo of old in the you know United States and Canada. Absolutely, yeah. Hundreds of thousands of animals, and guess what? Those animals did not stop in one pasture for like days on end. They were bunched together to protect their babies uh, from predators. And they stayed in a bunch for that reason and kept moving. They had a, uh, you know, they had predators after them. So that's, that is what created the Great Plains in the United States and the huge fertility, the huge, amazing uh, deep soil, deep topsoil. So he, Savory thought, wait a minute, these animals in certain areas, they still have these large herds and those places are healthy. There's, there's rain coming. The grasses are still growing. What's going on? So he came up with this idea that we should uh, emulate the, the great herds of old. And that's what people are doing. You call it can be called a lot of different things, planned management, grazing, um, all kinds of things. But the essential thing is that you keep your herds moving, bunched together, trampling the soil, and then eating a little bit, and then you move them on. Mm. So um, he's great. The he, he was a real inspiration for this film, to be honest, uh, because I, like everyone else, thought, well, we shouldn't have cattle. We shouldn't be eating beef. It's bad for the environment. Um, but uh, the thing about that is, is if 70% of our agricultural lands are basically for cattle or other uh, meat herds, those are not necessarily very good lands to grow crops. Um, they're, you know, they're grasslands. Mm -hmm. it's different. It's a different thing. So they should be kept in grasses, not crops. The other organization that I followed pretty closely is the Nature Conservancy. They're doing uh, what they call foodscapes. Uh, they, they currently have five or six on, anyway, their plan is to do nine or 10 or 11 around the world to demonstrate that this focus on soil uh, as a way to grow the, the healthiest uh, food is, is essentially what we need to be doing to, uh, so they have these large uh, swaths of land that's like sort of mixed use all over the world. And it's, it's kind of a, a, to show the UN and the, the country's governments and everybody that this is the more effective way of growing food and also it's redu it will reduce the greenhouse gases. So they, they have, um, They've been very effective worldwide in doing this. Savory has 50 hubs around the world that's dedicated mm. solely to uh, grassland uh, ranchers. And they're all over the world. I mean, these are large organizations doing work quietly, but incredibly effectively. And another thing that people don't know about is the U.S. government in the um, uh, one of their uh, Biden passed this, I, I never remember the name, something reduction act. Um, and he's, he's allocated billions of dollars to these new practices. So for example, the University of Missouri, where my uh, brother-in-law studied agriculture back in the day, 
they got a $20 million grant to be teaching farmers how to change the way they manage their land so that um, there's the other, the other benefit of doing uh, land management this way is that you're, you're not, uh, you're increasing biodiversity by having all those cover crops on the land, a lot of which have flowers. So you're increasing habitat and biodiversity on all these lands. That's a, that's another plus. Mm, mm. So talk a little bit about, um, I, I believe you talked about visiting, um, some of the places in, where was this again? In Mexico. Where in Mexico did you end up? Oh, that was what I was talking about just a few minutes ago. The Chihuahua. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the Chihuahuan Desert, which yes. extends into Texas. It used to be an incredible uh, cattle grazing area, mm. uh, which meant that there were seasonal rains, grasses came up in abundance. The last... 15, 20 years, it's it, people have left because the, in their opinion, the rains aren't there and the, uh, the land has gotten more and more desertified, which is a fancy way for saying nothing's growing. Yeah. So when I talked about Alejandro Carrillo, he is the, uh, the rancher we followed who had some land down there and he started using this uh, uh, holistic planned grazing method from Alan Savory, mm. where he said, okay, there's not a whole lot of grass here, but there's some, I'm going to bunch my cattle together. Why, why do you bunch them? It's partly because when they're they moving, uh, when they move together, they, they make with their hooves, well, first they chew the grasses, but not down to the nub. And mm. then they move. And as they're moving, they're peeing, they're pooping, and their, their hooves are making tiny indentations. So the, the land is getting a little bit disturbed. And, um, but that's fertilizer, the, the poop and the pee. Mm -hmm. So then they move on to a new pasture, eat the luscious, eat the grasses, and the same thing happens and it keeps happening. So they're growing grass behind them. Um, so then Alejandro had an interesting thing. He said he had a, a log from his family that dated, I believe, back to the turn of the last century, the 1890s or so. I could be exaggerating, but it was a ways. And he said the rain uh, has always been a certain, like, you know, not very much, but 13 inches a year or some craziness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's very um, little. It's very little, but it was very little back then too. But it was, the difference is how they were managing their herds. Yes. Um, they, so it's, we have, it's in our power to make these changes. And once uh, ranchers and farmers start using these new methods, they get really excited. Um, you know, I know a little bit more about the cattle because we, we did more of uh, the cattle, but the Burns brothers in uh, Bladen, Nebraska, you know, they have a typical corn, soybean and wheat operation on 3000 acres. Mm -hmm. They started uh, cover cropping. Well, first they started no-till and that was pretty good. That worked for pretty well. 
But then they went to some conference and heard about cover cropping and they thought, well, that sounds crazy, but let's try it. And their uh, productivity, productivity increased almost immediately. And uh, they then began a seed cover crop seed business where they would uh, sell seeds for various plants that would fix uh, soil, whether you're in Missouri or Montana or uh, Mississippi. Let's do all the M words. Yeah. Uh, so they custom mix cover crops that will uh, effectively deliver the right uh, nutrients through plants, just through plants to your soil. They're now, they started this, so I can't remember, about 10 years ago. Now they have customers in every state and they're beginning to go overseas. It is huge. It's, mm. a, big, it's a big business. Uh, because why? Because it's cheaper than buying fertilizer. Um, the input costs have gone up and up and up, and the results are not as good as they were when they first beginning to were, they first began to use the fertilizer. So mm -hmm. farmers are always looking for ways to um, uh, save save a few pennies, right? Yeah. on every single acre but the other thing that they emphasized is the water holding capacity changes mm -hmm. so their soils are holding more water they need less irrigation that's a big deal yeah this podcast is sponsored by small farm university the go-to resource for gardeners homesteaders and farmers around the world Small Farm University delivers classes online and on demand with training on how to grow crops and how to grow a profitable farm business that serves you, your family, and your community well. Applying what you learn in SFU could save you thousands of hours and thousands of dollars. And it can save you the agony of costly mistakes some make just because they don't know what they don't know. Delivered by real farmers with hands-on experience and expertise, it is unique in its approach, using the ripened method for growing and building a farm or farm business. Here are a few highlights of what SFU has to offer in its growing library of resources. Find your perfect farm property. Whether you are renting or purchasing, this course guides you through vetting the farm property and determining how or if it suits your business needs. We give you the secret sauce for what makes a profitable farm property and help save you thousands of dollars. Start your farm intensive. Fleshing out your farm idea, craft your one-page business plan, and discover the right funding options for your business. Use our business templates, worksheets, and calculators to figure out the numbers as you go. Farmer's Market Success System. Learn how to attract and convert customers by building an unstoppable marketing and business system for your farmer's markets. Production Mastery Series. Learn all about growing, harvesting, and drying greens. Learn about tunnel building and take special ed classes such as brand new and very popular Elderberry Masterclass. We include real life examples and calculators for figuring out fertility rates, how much money you are actually making, and where your profit is coming from. Business systems and marketing courses. Learn about the SFU Ripen formula for success, develop your marketing plan, and join in for behind the scenes tours of real farm businesses. Learn the systems you need to run your business well and how to hire a team to help you. And learn how you can add value to what you produce to generate even more income with minimal additional time and expense. In addition, members of SFU get access to the Growing Farmer Summits on demand with over 100 sessions of targeted areas of interest to farmers. These annual online events have attracted over 100,000 people from around the world, and they are included in your SFU membership as a bonus. 
SFU membership includes access to a private member group, monthly group Q&A sessions, and even one-on-one coaching sessions where you can get your questions answered and find the support you need. To learn more, visit growingfarmers.com today. And I, I think that was, you know, when, when we talked to my mentor, when I was starting farming, um, I knew very little. And so we had these great mentors, Paul and Sandy Arnold in the state of New York, and I've had him on the podcast. But I remember sitting there asking him, I said, okay, so what if these like, conventional farmers want to go organic? He said, what's the first thing they cut out? I said, what do they do first? He's like, well, unfortunately, because the system's broken, they have to keep the fertilizers and they have to keep the pesticides. He said, but the first thing they can do is start adding compost and building the organic matter. and exactly then yeah. switch to organic or uh, organic um, fertilizer and that's going to heal the soil and then you're just going to gradually not need as many pesticides. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, but when you use cover crops to uh, feed the carbon sugars through photosynthesis, plants drawing down that CO2 from the atmosphere and putting it in the excess sugars go into the soil and there's this whole microbial community. And in some cases, that's what we bro- what's broken by using fertilizers and pesticides. Mm. So that's, those uh, living organisms need to get some um, extra carbon sugars so that they come back. And that's a much better system for keeping your plants growing in a healthy manner. Um, And also, you know, we have an idea that we can grow rows and rows and rows of whatever, strawberries or wheat or corn. And that's when you get the insects. You actually do better as a farmer if you have a mixed, uh, you know, mixed crops. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you mix it up so that the, the Bugs don't say, oh, we're getting more corn this year. Ooh, yeah. there's corn coming back. I mean, so in general, these solutions are a sort of a nod to an earlier time and to indigenous cultures too, where you didn't grow one thing and think it would would thrive. And Instead, you grew a number, you, you, you grew a variety of plants. And uh, it used to be thought, well, that's not efficient. But these guys like the Burns Brothers with the 3000 acres and uh, our Trey Hill there in Maryland, very wet, dank, uh, you know, it's, he's, he's on the uh, Chesapeake Bay. He's got mm-hmm. 10,000 acres. He's doing cover crops. He's doing no-till on all those acres. And he is, he's, he's hardly using any pesticides at all. Every once in a while, a tiny bit here or there. As for fertilizer, that's pretty much gone too. So those are two big costs for farmers that are now uh, with these methods beginning to uh, be reduced. And that also reduces our, uh, climate problems because fertilizer is uh, another reason that agriculture is probably the biggest emitter of um, carbon. It's even bigger than we think transportation is really big, but it's, it's really right up there. So to, to transform the way we 
handle the land and grow food is actually one of the most hopeful things we can do in terms of growing more food, healthier food, and also uh, keeping the earth from heating up anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that the main focus of your film is to show that if you put more carbon back into the soil, then we can begin to reverse climate change. Yeah, we have what's called a legacy load of CO2 and other greenhouse gases. So even if we went off of oil tomorrow, which we need to do, by the way, we need to find um, better ways of uh, better energy sources. That's for sure. But even if we went off all oil, all gas tomorrow, we would still be heating up this planet because we have, it used to be 250 parts per so I forget what it's called, parts per million. In the atmosphere, we're now at 420. It's never mm. been that high. We have to get that number down. We can do that by changing the way we use lands. And also, let's face it, restoring um, forests, uh, the, not only the rainforest, but the boreal forests in the north, keeping those areas healthy, which means they're going to do their work of uh, photosynthesis and and you know bring down the uh, CO two. They they use the carbon for food. Mm-hmm. So the more natural areas that we have and can restore, the quicker those numbers are going to come down around the world. That's why it's called nature based solutions, not just farming. Mm-hmm. Share a little bit about Indigo Ag. Oh, I'd love to, but I'm not going to. They had a great plan and a great um, vision, but they had never been in the ag space. And so they they kind of flubbed it with the farmers. Um, so they're not really doing, well, I don't know what they're doing, to be honest, but um, it was a great idea, but it wasn't in- executed well. You know, well. It's, you know, the devil's in the details, huh? Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. And they had, uh, they developed a reputation for not quite delivering on their product, not because they were bad, but I think because they were new, they, the, the, um, the CEO had come from a different industry and it didn't work out, but the concepts are good. You know, mm-hmm. measuring the carbon, the measuring is still a kind of a tricky thing. Let me say why. You can do satellite imaging and see how much carbon you've got in your soil and how much you're building up, but that doesn't really work in dry areas. And it's the dry areas that we're having the biggest problems, right? It's not as effective at measuring the CO2. And to, you know, but, you know, uh, Trey Hill had another organization where he just, they asked him a whole bunch of questions and then he got paid a hundred, I think he got paid a hundred thousand for carbon credits um, mm. because he was doing everything that you needed to do on that acreage to increase the CO2 uh, drawdown and uh, sequestration. So the, the, the measuring is a little bit wild west still, but we're going to get there. Um, in the meantime, people are just going to get the they're going to do the uh, photosynthesis on steroids through no-till and cover cropping and growing, uh, keeping the earth covered, even in, in the winter. 
uh, with living plants. You know, if you if you fly over this country, uh, there's so much of the farm uh, area. You just have these round, bare dirt plots in three quarters of the year. That's what needs to change. It is changing, but it's you know it's it's changed enormously in the last two or three years. So um, I have a lot of hope for it. Yeah, yeah. What would you say to a farmer who's, you know, feeling a little bit lost and not quite sure, wants to go this direction, but not quite sure where to start? Oh, gosh. Um, if you're talking about a row crop farmer, there are organizations, uh, the Nature Conservancy would be a place to, you know, check out for information and where to go. But there's all kinds of soil health initiatives that are um, that farmers go to and learn from each other about how they're, you know, what people are doing. As I said, the uh, the ag schools are also changing their curriculum. Uh, they have outreach and extension programs. Um, but my understanding is that there's a huge wave of new teachings through all of those more conventional. Uh, formerly conventional uh, you know, teaching facilities. So I, I really can't tell you exactly where to go. There's a number of organizations, Young Farmers, I'm terrible with the names, um, Young Farmers of America. <laughs> They're pretty good. There's a lot of places. The Quivira Coalition, they have a lot of um, farm and ranch led training programs there in the West. Uh, you know, regionally, you have to go to your regions. You can also, there's a lot of, um, just look up regenerative agriculture on, you know, your internet, and you'll see all kinds of places that will be teaching and showing you how to do this stuff. Uh, it, that's the, that's the name that people have adopted for good reason. Mm -hmm. What would you say the most surprising thing was while you were making the film that you learned? You know, probably our distributor loved this film. We were making it, you know, in night, we began uh, filming in 2019. We filmed through COVID, um, but there was an election coming up, you may recall. And he said, our distributor loved our film because he said, you are talking to people in blue states and red states, and they all want the same thing. Mm -hmm. They all want healthy families, a living wage, which is a big deal for farmers. They all want to uh, farm their land in the way that makes the most sense for their community, for themselves, and for you know nature, uh, farmers are have the reputation sometimes as being a little hidebound, and I didn't find that at all. These guys and women, all they were they they began to really love their work by doing this again, and they were persuasive with their with their uh, communities. Their communities began have you know begun adopting these practices too. So I just love that. I love going to Bladen, Nebraska and 
hearing these brilliant farmers talk about why they adopted cover crops and why they started doing um, no-till and then why they started selling the uh, cover uh, crop seeds. I just love that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So hearing the stories and just seeing the movement moving forward. Yeah. And also, you know, in our news cycle, we also, we often hear about these big divides between cities and country and cities and farming. And uh, as I said, blue states, red states, and you, my idea in making a film is usually to find the commonality between people with differences. So I feel like this regenerative agriculture is uh, something that people embrace, whether they are blue state or red state, or whether they are in the city or they're in the uh, deep country, whether they're in Mississippi or in upstate New York. It's, mm -hmm. it's good for the farmer. It's good for the community. You know, the farmer wins, the land wins, and the climate wins. It's just a triple bottom line. People just, they were, it was amazing to see the enthusiasm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Pamela, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you coming on and sharing. And uh, where can people find out more about the film and watch it? Uh, there, uh, you can go to our, uh, to which we belong.com our WW web, web page. And also you can sign up on Facebook. There's all kinds, we, we post a lot of articles and uh, groups and things like that. Um, the Instagram we have is very active. They're all to which we belong. You know, you just look for that. Um, and our film can be seen on a number of platforms and I'm the worst person in the world to talk to about that. I just make the films. I've got a whole, <laughs> I've got some wonderful people who, who do all the other stuff, the distributing, which is really vital, but it's on, uh, it's on Apple TV. It's on, I'm going to say Hulu. I can't remember all the various, uh, you know, channels that it's on or platforms, I guess you'd call it. Um, you can also contact us through that same uh, to which we belong.com and, uh, you know, get an actual hard copy from or through our distributor. Uh, you know, libraries are, are buying the film. Um, universities are buying the film, you know, so it's, it's pretty well out there. Mm-hmm. All right. It should be pretty easy to get your hands on one yeah, way or another. You can just put it in, you know, and think you, it's a lot, a lot of different ways to watch it come up. Yeah. And I would say your, your Instagram's done really well. So folks should at least follow you guys on Instagram to just see all these regenerative stories that you guys are sharing. So that's great to see all of that. Yeah. We really love telling the stories. It's catching on like wildfire and it's, uh, there's a real good possibility that if we focus as a nation and as a world on this one thing, food, <laughs> we can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. And uh, what's next? 
Well, for the time being, I am still, we're still making content. We're making short uh, videos and whatnot on our Instagram and things. So we're focusing on that. We're focusing on getting this word out. We're focusing on getting to policy uh, makers. Um, we actually showed this film at COP26 in Scotland, Glasgow, a, a couple of years ago. It was chosen because of, through, for the, uh, through the UN as one of the um, visionary ideas for climate. So uh, that's the kind of um, thing that we, we, you know, we're still, we're still doing those kinds of events. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're still working on just kind of getting the word out there still about the film and. Absolutely. And well, about yeah. regenerative agriculture, really. Yeah. Yeah. And the film. I mean, um, people who watch the film are shocked because first there's a lot of content, but they really fall in love with these stories of these, um, these ranchers, these farmers. It's really a film about love more than anything. You know, love of your family, love of your community, love of your land, love of our planet. Um, so I always like to hear from people and that's, we hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. so it's not just informational. So I don't know what's next. That's what we're doing right now. Well, very cool. Well, definitely encourage folks to go listen and watch the film. It's a very inspirational and, uh, some awesome farms and, uh, educators and just things shown in the film. So definitely recommend folks go grab it. And again, thank you so much for coming on. Yes. Well, thank you. This has been great. And uh, thanks for to all of your listeners too. Absolutely. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.